Please join us for Episode 8 of I Dream of Genie. The Americanization of Genie. Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered am I. Welcome to Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Frank and Molly's podcast of magical sitcoms from the 1960s. I'm Stephen. And I'm Brian. And you're joining us for the eighth episode of I Dream of Genie. The Americanization of Genie. But before we get started, we are going to give you a brief synopsis. Genie is bored with the tedium of her domestic prison and decides she should become the modern American woman after reading an article in a woman's magazine. Tony counsels that Jeannie not fill her head with silly ideas, but Jeannie charges ahead in the battle of the sexes. At the peacock's tail, Tony becomes enamored with the feminine charms of the entertainment portion of the evening in the form of a belly dancer. Enraged Jeannie makes a scene, and she and Tony beat a hasty retreat. The next morning, Jeannie decides she needs a job, but to disastrous results. Episode ends with Tony suggesting that Jeannie should get a pet, whereupon she conjures up her old pet lion, Sim, much to Tony's alarm. And there we have it. First question I have for you, Brian, is how did we find ourselves here? I guess I'm not very smart and I'm slightly gullible. What's your origin story? I think it was too many snarky comments <laughs> while walking through the living room while Frank was watching episodes of I Dream of Jeannie. The bile that I vented towards the sitcom just naturally encouraged Frank to want to put me on the air and, and share my feelings. When we talked about this project, we would ask people, do you prefer Jeannie or Bewitched? And so many people said Jeannie. And they would talk about their childlike remembrances of the sitcom. And it occurred to me that there are two types of people that like I Dream of Jeannie, children and unrepentant misogynists. (laughs) Where do the repentant misogynists fall in? (laughs) Is there ever such a thing as a repentant misogynist? That's a good question. Anyway, should we talk about the episode? Yeah, I guess I was starting with the intro and thinking it looked like an erectile dysfunction commercial. Once upon a time, in a mythical place called Cape Kennedy, an astronaut named Tony Nelson went up on a space mission. The missile went up, but something went wrong, and they had to bring it down. With the rocket going up and there were problems and it had to come down. Do you spend a lot of time talking about Freud at home? I don't. I really don't. Maybe 20 years ago, I thought a little more about Freudian analysis, but uh, I guess it's really taken a backseat to a number of other approaches. So Perhaps you've repressed this. There you go. See? I'm not even a uh, valid reporter of my own feelings. She wanted to have fun, and she wanted to have it with Captain Nelson. So she followed him back to Cocoa Beach, a mythical town in a mythical state called Florida. And there in this house, the girl in the bottle plays Spin the Astronaut. The first scene, when Jeannie levitates the bottle up to Tony's study where he's building a model, it strikes me as the sort of thing that happens to me since I work from home. Anytime Chowder gets bored, Chowder's my dog, he wanders into my office to distract me and get my attention. 
And in this first scene, Jeannie acts in so many ways like a neglected pet. You must be hungry. Well, you ate hardly anything for dinner. You are without shoes again. I will go fetch your slippers. No, 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 please. Don't bother. Don't bother. Well, it's no bother at all, Master. Uh, Jeannie, I don't like being fussed over. I mean, well, oh. when I'm working, I don't like being fussed over. But, Master, I do and not mind. Please don't call me Master. It makes me feel like a fat old caliph. Oh. Thou art neither old nor fat. Thou art most handsome. Am I? Mm. I always see Tony playing with toys, and I think Jeannie makes a comment about him. What did I do with that glue? Oh, okay. Hey, 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 now be careful. Look, I put a lot of time in on this. Do I not know it? Every night to fashion a child's toy. It's not a child's toy. This is an exact replica of the one we're going to use next month. I don't know a lot about Genie, but just the few episodes I've seen, it always seems like he's tinkering with something that a teenage boy would play with. So maybe that's where the unrepentant misogynist comes in. <laughs> maybe they're all just teenage boys. I don't know. There, it's done. How about that, huh? Looks real enough to blast off, doesn't it? It's interesting. She does criticize him, but Tony also, throughout the episode, infantilizes her. What art thou laughing at? Well, it's a little funny. What are you reading, G? I'm reading a scroll. The Emancipation of Modern Woman. What does it mean? Uh, Jeannie? Oh, you don't have to worry about things like that. Oh, but I do. I want to understand your way of life so that I can please you. Well, you please me very much. Matter of fact, you're, you're perfect. His idea of what a perfect woman is, is someone without ambitions, is someone with no self-actualization, with no means of self-support. What he's really describing as his ideal woman is synonymous with a child. She wavers between a petulant child and a subservient pet throughout the entire episode. It is a disgusting display of a male fantasy of what a woman should be. So, except for the manner in which I speak, dress, and act, I am perfect. Dress. And you just keep working at it. Remember, practice makes perfect. I'm a little late. I'll see you tonight. Yeah, and he also wants her to be at his beck and call. So when he comes home, he, of course, wants her to be in a completely supportive role of making food, making sure the house is cleaned up, the domestic servant role. Are you a loser in the battle between the sexes? Mm. Is the man in your life aloof, indifferent to you, impossible to please? Does he fail to appreciate what you have to offer as a person, as a female? <laughs> the answer is obvious. The answer is obvious. One, you must learn how to challenge his masculine arrogance. <laughs> Two, you must be independent, self-reliant, unpredictable. Three, you must learn to cope with him on his own grounds. In short, you must become a modern American woman. I want to skip to the third scene, and that's where Tony's at work. I'm just curious, what did you think of this scene? It's the one scene that stands apart, in my opinion, from all the other scenes in this episode. Oh, um, is this the scene where he's in the uh, spaceship? 
Exactly. <laughs> what struck me as fascinating about this scene is the first time I viewed it, it seemed the one scene that could most easily be cut. And then upon further viewing, it occurred to me this is the one scene where it is strictly men. Furthermore, it is men working. It's dull, technical, practical. I think this scene is the key to the entire episode because this shows men's work. And the rest of the episode is essentially an extended argument about what women's work can be. So without this in the beginning, I don't think it does enough service in trying to destroy the straw man feminism that the episode tries to set up. Must have been a blockage in the oxygen valve. Well, we'll have it checked. How are we feeling? Hungry, sir. Well, didn't you eat your tube of roast beef? That's what made me hungry. I'll see you in the morning, Captain. I got a feeling from this scene that this is something they shot one day and thought we could put this into any episode if we just need to fill some time. So here's three to five minutes of men doing manly things and talking about food and a new Chinese restaurant. And uh, uh, we could a uh, Chinese the... restaurant owned by a Greek guy. <laughs> Get dressed! I got a real treat for you. I found the greatest Chinese restaurant run by a Greek in the Egg Fuyang. I was offended. I, I still haven't sorted out exactly what offends me about that, except for the overall prevailing Orientalism of this series. Right. And it's just such a generic scene. You're right. It's men doing manly work. But once again, it's Tony pretending, doing sort of the teenage boy pretend. I'll pretend I'm actually in space. I'll pretend that I'm losing oxygen. It contrasts greatly with the following scene, Tony returning home from work to find the house a mess. The living room is disordered. The kitchen is a mess. Jeannie has not made his bed, which to me was particularly offensive because she doesn't sleep in that room. It seems like your idea that Tony is a teenage boy comes home and realizes mommy's taken the day off. He turns the light on and his room is quite disheveled like a teenage boy. There's clothes on the lamp. There's clothes on the uh, chair. It sort of looks like a disaster. He returns home to discover that his woman has not been working. She has been busy studying how to become an emancipated woman. This shows the threat of what an emancipated woman would be is someone who neglects the housework. Oh. Hiya, master. How's the old boy? How's the old boy? What have you been doing? I've been doing nothing. Yeah, well, I know that, but I mean, what have you been doing? I have been studying the emancipation of modern woman. Oh, oh, that. I guess you got so caught up in it, you forgot to do the housework, huh? Oh, I did not forget. I decided to let you do it. What, me? How not to be a drudge. Share the work with him. Now, come on. Now, this, yeah, but that advice is for ordinary women. Now, you're not ordinary women. You're a genie, genie. No, but, I mean, all you have to do is bat your eyes and presto. No more presto. The magazine told her that there's three steps to being the modern American woman. It's challenges masculine arrogance. You need to be independent, self-reliant, and unpredictable. That will lead you to become the modern American woman. You must not take me for granted. Yeah. I never did that in my... I never... And besides, I'm an astronaut. I'm not a housekeeper. Mm. You must widen your horizon. Now that she's emancipated, of course, she laid around all day with her hair in curlers with a house coat on. So given that she doesn't have to do these other activities, 
I, I guess that's what the modern American woman does. And she also eats the bonbons. <laughs> she opened up a, a charge account under Tony's name uh, as his wife. So even the precepts of the article that she reads, it's all about appealing to a man. It strikes me as not the point of what emancipation is, because at the end of it, she still is an object of pleasure for her partner. It's a failure of really understanding what emancipation is. The way that they throw around the whole slave master thing through the series, that just puts my teeth on edge. (laughs) It's either completely infantilizing of women, or it keeps suggesting some sort of sadomasochistic relationship. Frank is so keen to point out that uh, Playboy and the sexual revolution, these were ideas that were already seeping into mainstream culture, whereas Bewitch seems to hew much more closely to a 1950s sensibility. I Dream of Jeannie really plays around with the idea of the dangerous sexuality of women. It does it not so much to challenge anything, but to titillate. And that is probably the worst use of the idea of sexual liberation, pure titillation. I like your take on this. When they're sitting on the couch and she's eating a bonbon, I think she says something about he needs to help out around the house. And he sort of does the skipper to Gilligan act where if he had a hat on, he'd take it off and hit it with her. But she makes a broom appear in his hands. And I'm just wondering if this is a shot across the bow at Bewitched. Now, now that, that, this is going just too far. The one thing that bothers me about Bewitched is Darren is always trying to convince Samantha not to use her magical powers. The greater context, this is something that she has that he does not. A source of power that doesn't derive from her knuckling under the patriarchy of the times. He is constantly trying to diminish her and rob her of her powers. And you see, likewise, Tony will occasionally ask that Jeannie not do her magic tricks. Both Samantha and Jeannie having magical powers is an inherent threat to the masculine structure and expectations of these stories. That's why the men continually have to try to rob them of their own agency in the form of magical powers. Yeah, and it seems like Tony is constantly catching breaks at work where the old boys club will support him. And and without that support, he wouldn't have much going for him. He does seem particularly hopeless, clueless gullible, hardly the model of masculinity, and yet he still has control over a beautiful woman. It is the ideal male fantasy. I believe this was filmed, or at least released, near the end of 1965. The first moonwalk was probably 69. And I wonder how many men were watching this that were really into this idea of land and expand of, yeah, we need to go to the moon. That's the epitome of male masculinity. Jeannie has these magical inherent powers. Tony, without using technology and without the benefits of modern science, he's not going to get to the moon, and otherwise he's just a complete earthbound creature. Oh, no, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. Hey, no, no, no. Jeannie, will you just calm down? Hmm? Yes? Delivered from Mrs. Nelson. Ah! Mrs. Nelson! Where do you want these? Back of the store. I'll take them. Sign this, please. What's going on here? A woman should have the kind of wardrobe that makes her feel successful, alluring, and irresistible. This reminds me of a story. When I was younger, we had neighbors who would talk about how he would control his daughter's television viewing. 
And he would never let them watch I Dream of Jeannie <laughs> because he found her lack of clothing to be disrespectful. He did not want his daughters to think that it was appropriate to show their midriff. So <laughs> he banned I Dream of Jeannie from the house and no one was allowed to watch it. It's a, it's a very sad story. That is a sad story. Just think of what interesting women they would have grown up to be if they had adapted Jeannie's way of life. Yeah, the, the sky's the limit, literally and figuratively. Yeah. The mink coat will arrive tomorrow. Mink coat? Where'd you get the money for all this? Chapter three, how to open a charge account. Yeah, well, I, I want you to forget this subversive literature. Uh, all those boxes go, go straight back to the store. The boxes of clothes arrive, and Tony's not happy. But once Jeannie puts on the blue dress, Tony is pleased. I don't know how you think I'm going to have the money to spend on this kind of thing. Jeannie, it, it, I just can't afford this. Jeannie. You are pleased? Pleased? Oh, you're beautiful. Well, it, it's because he's a teenage boy. Some clingy clothing and wiggle a bit, and uh, you can get anything. And the way he's staring... It's like Wiley Coyote with his eyes popping out. I may keep the gown. Is it very expensive? Insanely. He may keep the insanely. A and the slippers? And the slippers. A and the perfume? And the perfume. <sighs> Thou art all heart. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's like his reaction is binary. There's nothing dynamic about it. He's either completely anti-genie, and then as soon as she puts on the clothing, he's, he's very pro-genie. Either the writers were trying to channel an adolescent who has no fixed opinion apart from their own ego, or they're completely inconsistent because at one point he's saying, don't use your powers, but when it comes to him wanting his breakfast, he expects her to be able to conjure it up. For all he wants to use her for her magical abilities, he also needs to chide her for them. It's an annoying, persistent quality which the writers have created in Tony that really do make him either a two-dimensional character or completely adolescent. Jeannie can't win. You hungry? Famished. What do we have? It's fascinating that by reading this article, she decides that she has to spend money rather than use her magic to become the alluring modern woman. Champagne. Mm-hmm. Caviar. Mm-hmm. Flaming yarn. What? Oriental. Uh, uh, fresh asparagus. Mm-hmm. Uh, baked Alaskan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Napoleon brandy with the coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well? Well, what? Aren't you going to conjure it up? Oh, nay, master. No more of those silly little tricks. From now on, you will do the conjuring with the credit card. <laughs> so she's trying to assert her power over Tony. Is this Jeannie's virtue signaling? Is this where we talk about virtue signaling? <laughs> Even when they're talking about what will they have to eat, they talk about champagne, they talk about caviar, filet mignon, and one of them says, what next? And the other one says, oriental. Yeah, and they actually, they, they pronounce it oriental, <laughs> if it's French. It's even more exotic. At the end, it just feels so much like pastiche. It's so shallow. As someone who studied French and knows how to throw French into a sentence to self-aggrandize. Let's hear it, <laughs> for example. 
Well, you could say, oh, that's so au courant. Oh, there you go. It's so affected that when I heard Oriental, I immediately was repulsed. They are using things symbolically, which they have no idea of their meaning. Do you think she was trying to be funny? There is nothing funny about Jeannie. (laughs) Poor Frank is going to have to edit this to make it not sound like Stephen's diatribe against Jeannie. I was hoping it would be Stephen's diatribe against Jeannie. (laughs) This episode did nothing for me. And you're right, there's nothing funny about Jeannie, unfortunately, because then at least there would have been something redeeming about uh, this episode. I think I've only gotten angry with the jokes. When Roger wants to be invited over, the dismissal of her as a girl who comes in, does my cleaning, and makes meals for me, and uh, Tony says, well, she's not a very good cook. And then I know he's trying to push Roger away, but ultimately it is just a callous disregard for Jeannie. I see no sense of humanity in Tony's treatment of Jeannie. So let's talk a little bit about the restaurant, because it also bothers me. I spend a fair amount of time in restaurants, and uh, this looks like the worst restaurant ever. The name of the restaurant is Tale of the Peacock. <laughs> and Charles Darwin, for a long time, he looked at the peacock, and he thought peacocks were ugly. The peacock tail had nothing to do with natural selection. It was cumbersome. It weighed the peacock down. Uh, you couldn't move out of the way of predators as easily. So for a long time, he was thinking about this, and finally he came up with this theory of sexual selection. So instead of natural selection, the peacock led him to his theory of sexual selection, which is not everything that we see in the animal kingdom was derived purely from natural selection per se. As I watched the scene, I tried to keep that in mind, that maybe this is what the writer of the episode is trying to say. That's a fascinating observation because sexual selection is the point of the scene. Uh, when it's announced that a belly dancer will be the entertainment, <laughs> exactly, which really threw me because um, it's <laughs> apparently a formal sit-down French restaurant. I've been to my share of formal sit-down French restaurants, and never once have I been entertained with belly dancing. <laughs> For your pleasure, the tale of the peacock is happy to present a program of authentic harem dance. Oh, I used to do those dances at parties for the Sultan. <laughs> Performed by the distinguished artist Sadalia. When the harem dance starts, and uh, the term harem dance just made me want to scream out, in the natural world, there are so many species for which there is a dominant male that has a harem. So right off the bat, your observation about this being about sexual selection is hinted at, but Jeannie enjoys the harem dance until she notices Tony is paying too much attention to the dancer, and therefore the dancer becomes a threat. The form that her objection takes is that she needs to get up there and show her how the dance is done. And so she needs to outdance and outperform the belly dancer. And so you actually do have a display of sexual selection taking place, albeit briefly, on the stage for everyone to view. Yeah, Jeannie indicates she's a fraud, and uh, this fraud must be uh, replaced with somebody who, who knows what they're doing. In my day, she would be flung to the crocodiles. Shh, Jeannie, please. 
has never been a harem dancer. That girl is an imposter. <laughs> She's not fit to dance for an audience of camel drivers. Be quiet, Jenny, please. I will show you how the dance should be done. The next scene, when they return home, they are laughing about the fact that Jeannie sped up the dance at the end, which was a sheer act of petulance. If I can't win in this situation, I'm going to punish someone else who's not responsible. And both she and Tony are laughing about this when, in fact, it's not a particularly funny, it's a rather cruel thing to do to someone. <laughs> That's the funniest thing I ever saw. <laughs> Poor girl. Well, I am pleased that it amused you, Master. <laughs> Neither of these people are very mature. And then Tony turns on her. Where are we going tomorrow night? Nowhere. <laughs> oh, but, but there are 17 more lessons that I have not tried out yet. Yeah, well, forget it. I don't think they had you in mind when they wrote that magazine article, Jeannie. <laughs> but, but I want to be a typical woman. Well, woman, maybe. Typical, never. A woman, maybe. I have been practicing for over 2,000 years. You just better keep right on practicing, young lady, because a woman doesn't act the way you did tonight. But your behavior this evening was absolutely disgraceful. Oh, and let me tell you one more thing. Their argument ends with her once again sulking in her bottle, and she uses her magic to toss Tony uh, into his bedroom. I feel like I'm imprisoned in a world of teenagers. <laughs> oh, Ginny, uh, I'm ready for breakfast. Hey, how about conjuring up some bacon and eggs? The next morning, Tony wakes up and wants breakfast and is annoyed to find that Jeannie is nowhere to be found and that she has left without making him his breakfast. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> you suck, Mom. <laughs> I hate you. See, uh, demonstrator wanted? No... No experience necessary, Sam's Discount Center. When we look at the astronauts at work, we see what male work looks like. And then the scene with Jeannie at the discount store essentially shows what women are like in the workplace. And rather than being technical, and calm, composed, thoughtful, and ordered, it is overwrought, full of tricks, full of magic, full of sleight of hands, and the women turn into a mob and turn against Jeannie. Yeah, it disintegrates into a mob action where people are uh, emotional, illogical, and um, mistrusting. Good morning. I'll be with you. Huh? <laughs> Ladies, gaze upon the ultimate in kitchen wonders, the miracle oven. Well, what about it? Oh, what about it? Uh, well, uh, it, it's, its wonders include an automatic timer, electric clock, stainless steel counter, built-in meat thermometer, and all-new built-in roasterama interior. <laughs> uh, whatever that is. Uh, it's just like all the others. Come on, Pauline, let's try to shop across the street. Oh, oh please, wait. If you do not fork over, I will not have a commission. <laughs> this is an old trope that's always bothered me. In some sense, it is still used, and it's this idea that women are in competition for the attention of men. And at this workplace, Jeannie is trying to appease her new boss and earn a commission. The obstacle to that are other women. It is a reference to the sexual competition 
the proper role for a woman is to compete for the attention of a man. There is no sisterhood. There is no solidarity among women. It is always competition. And this always bothers me because it's used, even in politics today, it's used to deny uh, women a sense of their mutual goals and desires in an attempt to divide them politically. This miracle oven is truly magical. For instance? Well, uh, it will cook whatever you desire instantly. Instantly. I will demonstrate. Jeannie can only get a job where she does two things. She lies and she uses her magic powers. She doesn't have the ability to get a job that is in something other than a retail role. So she's stuck basically using her deceptive skills and her magic powers to fool others, to uh, get them to give up their hard-earned money. Poor Jeannie. It is done. I don't believe it. I will show you. Oh! oh. Did you see what I saw, Pauline? I think so, Francis. I think I'll buy one. Well, it also reinforces the idea that she's not suited outside of the home. For all the talk that Tony says she's she's not a real woman, real women do not behave like this, it just reinforces the idea that Jeannie's place is in the home, and by an extension, getting your head filled with any of these fancy ideas will only lead to ruin. <laughs> This episode is so anti-feminist and just anti-modern. I can think of movies in like in like the classic age of cinema, the 1930s, where there are more empowered women. This is really a strange reentrenchment of an idealized femininity that didn't exist previously. It really seems malignant and thoroughly distasteful. <laughs> Yes, Jeannie's a fish out of water in the workplace. She's uh, she's only going to last so long before she has to go back home into her to her element where she's comfortable and can re-energize because this world of work, uh, she's just not suited for it. And of course, it's during the workday, so all these women are out shopping. Is that is that what all these women have time to go out and shop? Is that the other thing they're trying to say that you know the Americanization of Jeannie is completely tied to capitalism? People must go out and shop in their spare time. It's an unflattering thing to call them, but I told Frank that they were the Homac Harpies. The mob of women that we are presented with are looking for a bargain. They're economizing. They are looking for the latest gadgets to make domestic life more easy for them. But they're not self-actualized. They are trying to achieve mastery of the domestic sphere. And if you accept that your role is to achieve just mastery of the domestic sphere, you've already accepted your defeat. You've accepted your limitations, yes. The only person who can get Jeannie out of this situation is, of course, Tony. Thankfully, Tony shows up to bail her out because otherwise this angry mob would have, uh, would have. oh, who knows? I don't know what they would have done to Jeannie. But. And the only other man in the scene was her boss who tried to stop Tony from taking Jeannie out. They were essentially two men fighting over possession of a woman. Ladies, will you please don't be excited. It's just some little misunderstanding, I'm sure. Yeah. I was just pitching a demo so they would fork over a commission. Oh. 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 
across the street sent you here to make trouble. Oh, no. Yeah, let's go. All right, no, no, she's not going anywhere. Oh, yes, she oh, is. She's... Don't let her get away. It's as if she couldn't leave on her own, that she needed to be rescued by a man, and a man was trying to detain her. She was property with no agency of her own. Yes, she was merely the cog in the middle of a transaction. Shall we talk about the turd on top of the Sunday? <laughs> the terrible last scene. Jeannie, there's no reason to be unhappy. It could have happened to anyone. Could not have happened to a modern woman. You were right. I'm a failure as a woman. Oh, you are not. You're everything a man could want. You're warm and considerate and affectionate. Oh, master. And you need an outlet for all that affection in you. Oh, that is what I've been trying to tell you. And I have the answer. Uh, yes. You need a pet. A pet? Yeah, you know, like a... A dog or a cat or a parakeet. And he suggests she should get a pet because of the censors and the time period. It was rather risque that you had a woman living in your house who you were not married to, and they, they make it very clear that she sleeps in the bottle. But at the same time, there is this implicit idea that there is some sort of illicit sexual relationship between the two, at least from the outside looking in. When Tony said she should get a pet, what I heard was she needs a bun in the oven or a baby in the cradle, and that's what will make a woman satisfied. <laughs> okay, I'm going to drop the mic now. Uh, uh, you, you should. You've, you've earned all <laughs> mic-dropping privileges, absolutely. <laughs> like a dog, a cat, or a parakeet. It is such a stupid observation. It, it doesn't serve Tony particularly well that this is his brilliant idea. I really think that this is a stand-in for a child, that a, a woman is never complete until she's had a child. Did you ever own a pet back there? Oh, yes, once. <laughs> His name was Sim. The Sultan gave him to me. Good. Well, first thing tomorrow morning, you run down to the pet shop and get one just like him. In the greater context of the series in this particular episode, it presents a straw man argument about feminine liberation and then proceeds to destroy it, uh, to use a French term, quelle surprise. There you go. And then proceeds to reinforce the idea that a woman's frustrations need to be channeled into some sort of nurturing. And because the taboo subject would have been to mention a child at this point, they do the next best thing, which is to recommend a pet. And I frequently tell young new parents that their newborn baby is very cute, but my dog is still smarter. <laughs> or better yet, why don't you fetch old Sim here? Oh, master, thou art brilliant. If you think of the Apollo astronauts, they were cultural heroes. They were epitomes of masculinity, and not in that shallow, ridiculous way that Tony is. And if you look at their later careers and their role in the media, they were stoic. They were granted so much esteem culturally that it is odd to see Tony become just sort of a mockery of, of how astronauts were viewed in our society. Their cultural cachet lasted well into the 80s and 90s. And as they've started dying off, there's been all this outpouring of grief for their passing 
I think that they represented sort of the idealized role model for men in this country. I remember seeing images everywhere as a kid. They were in magazines. They would put them on drinking glasses. They would show up on occasional cameo appearance on a television show, and they were held in very high esteem as these modern-day explorers who were much more of a renaissance human being than uh, you know, some emotionally binary Tony that we see in I Dream of Jeannie. Well, is there any more bile we'd like to heap onto I Dream of Jeannie? Uh, you know, no, not really. I just watch these episodes and don't get much out of them. Frank can turn what I've said into something even semi-coherent and useful. He's a true master of the podcast arts. Well, and if he can shorten some of my rants so that they seem less ad hominem. Yeah, I I like your rants. I was hoping it would be more this way with just sort of you, you ranting. As far as criticism goes, I'm more of a Gene Shallot mixed with a Gene Siskel, the two genes, you know, the, the lions of American criticism. My criticism is inspired by too much time spent in uh, literature courses. I am the person who someone asks a question, oh, what did you think of this movie? And then I notice that they're wandering away after about 15 minutes of a very detailed uh, analysis of, uh, of the plot. I've made myself singularly unpopular at dinner parties and uh, social gatherings. Well, I, I guess you shine in the podcast format then, because I, I think it works well for the very well for this type of format. I was I was expecting a little more postmodern Derrida approach. Um, oh no, no, I would I would never, um, no, no. <laughs> My references to Freud are not at all psychological either. I think he is purely a literary critic. Likewise, I view postmodernism as uh, odd fad, a search for meaninglessness. Speaking of postmodernists, uh, my favorite insult against them, and this is a reference that uh, Frank Lloyd Wright made to Philip Johnson, and it's something I feel is a structuralist's critique of anyone who is uh, such a fan of postmodernism, is that uh, he said of Philip Johnson, he was a man educated well beyond his capability. <laughs> and uh, that, I feel, applies to, uh, to, to a lot of people who embrace uh, postmodernism. You can write sentences that are so solipsistic and rootless and say nothing in such dazzling complexity. That in and of itself is an intellectual feat, but I'm sure that's, uh, that's mostly smoke, very little heat or fire. <laughs> I've been out of academic circles for, oh, 25 years now, so who knows what uh, the current fad is, but uh, hopefully close reading will make a comeback. Postmodernism has only achieved one significant thing, and that is the idea that nothing can be understood. <laughs> and thank you, postmodernists. That's why we have Trump. <laughs> Well, very good. All right. Hopefully we can talk more in person and not actually have to watch an episode beforehand. Yeah, and I look forward to your uh, podcast about pets or dogs. Or... Next week I will do my first podcast with Bert about wine and spirits. Oh, nice. It's called Kindred Spirits. I'll listen to it and I'll drink along. There will be recommendations, wine recommendations, cocktail <laughs> recipes, lots of fun things. I so. like it. 
stay tuned for Kindred Spirits to be released this week. Featured on Kindred Spirits, the Sidecar Cocktail, made with Armagnac and Dry Curacao. A feature on the Wines of Sancerre. Please make this drink or pour this drink and listen along. I'll let you go. I look forward to my check in the mail. We have to start shilling, what, stamps.com, parachute sheets. Uh, uh, what, what else are... MeUndies uh, underwear. The, MeUndies, the cash app. Blue apron, till it goes under. Is it a better way to cook or a better way to eat? I can't remember. But yeah, so once we start getting that crazy money, especially that stamps.com money, man, sweet, sweet stamps.com yeah, money. Yeah, it'll be rolling in. We'll start sending residual tech checks. That'll be nice. Very good. All right. Well, have a good, uh, good uh, rest of your day. All right. Thank you, Stephen. You too. Bye. Hello, Brian. Do you want to clap and count to three? No, I don't think that's necessary. Okay. The Americanization of Genie. The Americanization. <laughs> the Americanization of Genie. Americanization. The Americanization of Genie. Pumpkin, I need my glasses. I'll grab them for you. Where are they? I don't know. I'll find them. Sorry, I can't. I can't read things anymore. <laughs> I understand. Here are my glasses. In the meantime, okay. I'll keep looking for yours. Doesn't he need his glasses to find yours? <laughs> A very good point. Uh, let's get started here. Jeannie is bored with the tedium of her domestic prison and decides she should become the modern American woman. Ah, let me start again. Jeannie is bored with the tedium. <sighs> <laughs> I don't know how they do this. My grandparents, my mother's parents, I guess you could call them somewhat of a fast set. In the 50s and 60s, they did a fair amount of traveling. I don't think they made it to Havana, but I know that they used to love going down to Mexico City. It always struck me as odd because they showed no particular interest in uh, Central American or Mexican culture, but they said that Mexico City had uh, this incredible nightlife. And if they weren't going to New York to go dancing and listening to big band music, then they're going to Mexico City. They would bring back the cheap tourist tiki-taki and decorate their house with it. And I also remembered they had African, uh, African masks and African art. I think it was uh, a sensibility, a, a style in the 50s and 60s to have these external trappings of exoticism to prove that you weren't just like everyone else. And I see that in the decor of Tony's apartment. There are, or his house, there, there's like a Buddha, there's, uh, it seems like there's African art. It's this sort of cultural pastiche that's supposed to signify that Tony's traveled or cultured or appreciates the finer things. The reality is that he doesn't know anything about any of these cultures. He's just robbing them of their symbols to enhance his own cultural sensibilities. Uh, it's, it's rather ironic. The appearance of being worldly without being worldly at all. Yeah, there's, there's a few uh, odd totems around the house. Greek sculptures, some strange phallic-looking object up against the wall 
um, in the living room. I mean, having a, a dog, I mean, Chowder, because I work from home, I am his constant object. <laughs> let's, let's get more into psychology here. I am his constant object. So my absence fills him with acute sense of panic. So often his sense of well-being is his proximity to me. And while it's nice to walk through a room and see that he follows you as you walk through the room, making sure that you don't leave and that uh, he shows you his belly for belly rubs every time you come close to him, there's also part of me that hates him for being <laughs> so codependent. <laughs> And, uh, well, you, you have Fisher, too, who has uh, extreme levels of codependency. Yeah. There's something so sad and pathetic about that situation, and Jeannie occupies it. She is squarely within that dog that's been beaten and just wants to be loved. Jeannie with Stockholm Syndrome. Well, up until the Americanization of Jeannie, she doesn't seem to mind that role, but boy, are things going to change. <laughs> Um, I also uh, love to chase him around the house. I get some really excited. Um, you know the the you know when a dog does the butt tuck. You've seen the butt tuck run. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I can I can get him butt tucking and running all around the place. <laughs> if you want to see an epic battle, I would recommend googling Iceland Swan versus Sheep. I'll take a look at it. That was a, a piece of really probing analysis of not only looking at something, but seeing what those images represented. People think you can never truly know what's going on in someone else's mind, but I think Instagram, about all the social media applications, because everyone's got a camera and everyone can post images, and apply filters and crop them and compose them, people make decisions. This is what I want to show because they want to project something about themselves. And so if you look at a body off of Instagram, body of work, you can really start to understand who people are. And that's probably what makes it the most unsettling of the social media applications is that it does really reveal something about the, the psyche of the person uh, in charge of the account. You know, it sounds like you just described Jeannie's Instagram account, if Jeannie would have had an Instagram account. I like the idea. There would be pictures of the inside of her bottle, <laughs> maybe one uh, beautifully looking up at the stopper, a sense of entrapment and the world closing in, something unattainable, something unreachable. I think there'd be a lot of before and after pictures, like before I clean the kitchen and after I clean the kitchen, like a lot of blinking, like what my blinking can do, or nodding, or whatever it is she does. I don't, I don't know what you would call it. Um, yeah, she. I think she blinks. But uh, I do like that because it's it's sort of the before after. It's the it's the two photos on Instagram. It's, uh, yeah. So I th I think part of your role going forward is you should support the podcast by doing what would Jeannie's Instagram look like and take some pictures and. <laughs> Put some thought into that. Maybe what would Samantha's Instagram look like? And so you could have an Instagram account for the podcast that is purely um, comes from you. This is this is a great idea. I'll have to sort this out with uh, with our producer Frank. And you could also do what would Tony's Instagram look like? 